sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, as you know, we are ardent defenders of religious freedom. That's what our program is all about. But it appears from recent Supreme Court cases that there may be an extremism in, you know, can religious liberty protections go too far? That's really the question here in light of what the Supreme Court has been doing recently. So I've invited as our guest today, Mark Rush is the Waxburg Professor of Politics and Law and the Director of the Center for International Education at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Professor Rush, thank you for joining us on Freedom's Ring today. Thanks so much, Alan. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invite. So, you know, among the legal scholars, there has been discussion of what is increasingly being called most favored nation status for religious freedom in the law. Why don't we start, if you would, address what is it that is meant by this most favored nation status, and then we'll take a look at maybe critiquing it and what some of the problems may be. So I think um, this comes from the recent Supreme Court cases dealing with religiously based challenges to quarantine orders or closing orders and whatnot over the last year and a half. And most favored nation status isn't actually a term of the courts. It came out of the law reviews and legal commentariat, as it were, which addresses statements by Justice Kavanaugh, others essentially saying that whatever a state or a municipality does to give, I guess, preferred status in dealing with the quarantine orders to commercial ventures, whatever the case may be, whatever the loosest constraint is, churches, religion has to get that And so, therefore, it is always given most favored nation status, as it were. It is never less than top priority when passing laws in, you know, the general welfare. That is, I guess, a slightly weaker version of it. You see others who say, no, in all clashes, religious freedom wins. Regardless, it is the top right. It should be for whatever reason. And so I found this rather intriguing because it strikes me as potentially chaotic. And um, there was a lot of discussion about this. If one right takes precedence over the other, it means then that you really, the court really can't resolve clashes among rights evenly. I don't want to say fairly, but it can't walk into a uh, clash among rights uh, with an open mind if it's given one priority. So it strikes me as a formula for chaos. And it's not specifically a criticism of religious freedom. It's any of the rights in the Bill of Rights. So what one can never take precedence over the other. They're all equally important. And when clashes occur, the court has to figure out how to balance them essentially based on the context of the clash. So, you know, let me bring this down to a very pragmatic level, because I'm thinking about these clashes of rights. And, you know, folks who value religious freedom are going to say, well, yeah, I'm glad if religious freedom is winning consistently, and I want religious freedom to win consistently. But I'm going to put forward a couple of examples of where uh, you might want to pause and say, well, maybe religious freedom shouldn't win, right? So uh, a generation or so ago, uh, there were those who raised religious freedom claims for the right to have segregated private schools, right? That it's okay to have a Christian school that excludes people on the basis of race. I think most of us would now recognize that 
you know, racially using religion to justify racial discrimination, the religious freedom claim should not win. There may be a few who will believe that it should win privately, probably wouldn't admit publicly. Um, you know, what about, you know, there were a number of battles over landlords and restrictions on discrimination in renting. But what if a landlord says, you know, it's a sin to rent to an unmarried couple or to a gay couple because they're, you know, violating God's moral law. But what if they refuse to rent to a, someone who observes the Saturday Sabbath rather than going to church on Sunday? Because they say that, well, that's a violation of God's law. And, you know, we don't believe in that. So that's sort of, you know, practicing religious discrimination in the name of religious freedom. So I, I think there's a lot of, you know, if we drill down, we may say, yes, we think religious freedom claims should be taken seriously and should win much of the time. But if we're honest, we have to recognize that there is also great potential for spurious religious freedom claims that should not win. Sure, and I think that's sort of the response to the notion of most favored nation status. And again, the term comes from the you know scholarly commentary and whatnot. But what the court was saying, what Justice Kavanaugh in particular said to that effect, you know, suggests okay, religion's now been elevated above all others. I think your examples are great. And again, I think your last example is ideal. What if you know a Christian decides he or she doesn't want to rent to Jewish folks? Jewish folks don't want to rent to Jehovah's Witnesses. Who wins? And does that transform a religious battle into say a property rights battle? Right. And that's what I find is a fascinating aspect of the study of constitutional law, or, you know, in general, is that frequently um, debates or controversies can narrow down, you know, the focus of what's, you know, more complicated conflict, say, than the commentators would suggest. And I think that's a great example of what you suggested. I think, you know, and again, to give an opposite example, or I guess equal but opposite, the court still recognizes the ministerial exception. So if a church or other religious organization is hiring a pastor or whatever, yes, of course, we get to discriminate there, but to abide by principles of our faith. And therefore, if you want to come and be our pastor or whatnot, our minister, you need to abide by rules that whatever you want to say out there, outside the church, would not be tolerable. Um, again, that raises complexities of its own. But I think at least in theory, that gives us a good example of where, yes, that's where religion might be supreme, whereas, as you would suggest, discrimination in public housing and whatnot, not so much. Well, but even, you know, your example of the ministerial exception, uh, the court has taken it to a most favored nation kind of extreme by saying that a Roman teacher at a Roman Catholic school who herself is not Catholic not required to believe the Catholic faith or to practice it or even to teach it, that she cannot bring a disability discrimination claim against the school because the school is insulated by this First Amendment concept of being able to treat all of its teachers as ministers. That's a rather extreme application of most favored nation status, which I think produces a grave injustice. And again, you know, you could, we, as we move from one case to the other, you try to extract a principle that makes sense and is consistently applicable from one situation to the next, and you slam into the controversy such as that. I think what you see, though, is that um, over the court's history, it's wrestled with these things and um, these challenges, especially when new ones arise. Um, over 100 years ago, um, you know, the right of contract, um, famous case lock, New York couldn't just try to regulate baker's hours as a matter of safety. 
it took them better part of 30 years, but then in the New Deal, the court said, no, we need to think about these rights differently, the nature of economics, the nature of contract, the nature of the relationship between labor and capital and so forth. And we're going to rethink this a little bit more to give labor to help workers to stand up a little more strongly because the vision of sort of the equality of labor and capital coming out of the 19th century didn't work very well in post-industrial society. I think, you know, challenges now we see free speech and the internet and the threat that poses to your privacy. Um, some troll can get a hold of you and ruin your life before you get up tomorrow morning and, and you're damaged. Now, how to resolve this is another matter. But I think, and the most extreme revision, example of this is revenge porn. Mm -hmm. You know, who owns your image and what can I do with it? And I can say, well, this, you know, if I can hang up a picture of Jerry Falwell as I uh, was in Hustler Magazine or whatever, um, fine, that's Jerry Falwell. He can maybe handle it or whatever. But if someone, you know, inflicts revenge porn upon you, you may not be able to work for the rest of your life because you, you'll be kryptonite or whatever. And the court is now encountering more claims like this as a result of, A, I think, technology. B, um, a lack of a better term, just, you know, the crowding of society. Uh, people are clashing more. Their claims are more likely to inflict with one another. And the court now is finding itself more increasingly in the position of playing referee among competing rights claims than sort of restraining the government, broadly speaking, vis-a-vis -vis the conscientious objector, the, the draft, you know, the folks protesting the draft in World War I, um, Jehovah's Witnesses later on, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's sort of the court dealing with a vertical fight, and now it's dealing with horizontal ones a lot more. Well, I think rightly, Professor Rush, you point out that increasingly there is a, you know, competing rights between different individuals and different groups in society that the court is called upon to uh, kind of play referee. Um, the most common one that we think of in the religious freedom community is the clash between LGBT rights and religious freedom. Are there others that you see competing with religious freedom? Well, I suppose LGBTQ rights, you know, generalizes to just notions of equal protection. You know, um, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the Hobby Lobby case, and so forth. And I think we'll see increasing numbers of such clashes, just as, again, 35 years ago, there was no LGBTQ community. Now it's covered under the umbrella of equal protection. Right. There was no organized community as such. That's a key point. Yeah. As groups get organized, there was no organized, until the NAACP got together, there was no organized fight for racial justice and so forth. Uh, women's rights and so forth, other minorities. So I think as groups become better organized and the internet makes this easier now, I mean, the ability to amplify your power significantly exists in a way that it never did, even 25 years ago. And so the court's going to find, I think, greater number of political clashes finding their way into courts, as Topol said. These will be clashes where the court's looking at laws where the state, generally speaking, is trying to referee, and then the court has to step in and referee. You know, I think the challenge for us as Americans thinking about this is our commitment to pluralism. You know, I was reading an article that was discussing how normal Trump supporters are. You know, ordinary Americans defending their own rights, that sort of thing. And maybe that was something they needed to point out to those who despise Trump supporters and remind them that there's nothing unusual there. I don't know. But one of the things the article pointed out was it's unusual to defend the rights of others. 
Now, as a Seventh-day Adventist, that's what our church is about in our public affairs and religious liberty work is, is about defending the rights of others. But in a pluralistic society, if we're going to succeed with people of different beliefs, with different sexual orientations, with you know different value systems, the only way that we succeed as one nation, under God or not, however you believe it, is to extend the same rights and freedoms to the other guy that we want for ourselves. And that's the value that I think is being challenged. I'm not sure that the Supreme Court is doing a very good job of providing leadership there. I'd say right now, you see the court, this isn't a criticism, it's not condescending or anything, but you've seen the court when it encounters new clashes. It takes them a little while. They have to catch up. The court's always sort of lagging behind, I think, historically. Congress can run ahead. The state legislatures can run ahead and write laws. And so the court's catching up, just dealing with increasing number of clashes, as you say, more groups. So we got to extend the same equal protection to everybody. That may mean we need to kind of shrink the scope of those rights if more and more people are claiming them just so you can manage the clashes. And that doesn't mean you need to take liberty away and give it to give power to the state. It's just simply the state as referees saying, look, we have to manage these clashes. And so I think what you see now is the court struggling, you know, to get its arms around numerous such clashes, especially dealing with technology, wealth, and then increasing numbers of equality claims. And where the court is handicapped, and again, this is it's not gratuitous criticism, is that the court has to sit back and wait till somebody brings it a case. It can't just run around giving out justice, and that's a good thing. The court can be passive, so. And in some cases, it's a good thing that it's not doing a very good job at this because it means these fights are sort of staying in the political arena where maybe they can be worked out better. If more and more of the fights or clashes come to the court, it means the political process isn't working so much. That will give the court a lot more to work with and perhaps be able to develop the law more effectively. On the other hand, it means the political process needs some help. And we've seen this throughout history. It comes back and forth. And right now, I think the court, I would predict the courts are some across from numerous such clashes, especially driven by technology, to the extent that technology leads to better organization among groups. And it creates clashes with regard to speech and privacy. So it's a great time to be studying the court. Well, that's a great note to end on. Our guest today, Professor Mark Brush. We've been talking about the court's kind of most favored nation status for religious freedom and the whole topic of the clash of rights. Thank you for being with us on Freedom's Ring, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you. As we close, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>